It's a pleasure to introduce my colleague, Milbury McLaughlin, and uh, I'm gonna give you a brief overview of her background. She was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and grew up there. She got a bachelor's degree from Community Connecticut College in, and uh, then went on to get her PhD in Harvard in education with a specialization in education policy. Uh, her uh, initial uh, recognition that I met her was when I, she was working for Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. From 1973 to 83, uh, she worked at Rand on many areas of education policy. Uh, she was particularly uh, noted and still cited today, even though it goes back to the 80s for her concept of mutual adaptation, how education policies and innovations work in a fragmented system of education we have uh, with federal, state, and local systems. It's a long way from a policy pronouncement or an innovation in uh, D.C. and Sacramento to a local classroom. And she worked out how it really works as each side works to accommodate each other and change and modify uh, the policies. It's, it's a really widely used theory. Uh, in 1983, uh, Milbury came from, uh, ran to the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. Uh, she chaired the evaluation preparation program for students doing educational evaluations of new programs, innovations, and so on. Uh, she was named to the David Jacks Chair in 1999 uh, after her work on teacher context and capacity, uh, looking at the teacher's role from the classroom up rather than down, and uh, with a slogan, I think you're never better than your teachers as an education system. In 2000, she became the founding director of the John W. Gardner Center for on Youth and Adolescence. I remember having a talk with John Gardner and he said, you know, I've raised all this money. I really want someone that'll stick with it. And I said, she will stick with it. And she stuck with it till her uh, uh, retirement from the Stanford faculty, turned it into a major uh, national policy research center, uh, charted a new course in many research domains around children, uh, around uh, uh, external organizations to schools, so she dealt with out of school organizations, community schools that are open uh, all, uh, many hours for parents, parent engagement, and also partnerships with other government agencies. She also put together all of this diverse children's uh, data sources from juvenile justice to uh, foster care in localities near Stanford to get a holistic view of what's happening to children rather than just reporting schooling outcomes. So she's uh, influential in uh, conceptualizing and devising major public policy institutions, probably even more known for uh, telling government there's a problem before government ever knew they had a problem. <laughs> so it's my problem to turn it over to Mil Milbury. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, it's a treat have you introduced me in, and I'm really honored to be here um, almost all of you. Uh, my task as I understood it from Mike and Iris was to begin to outline kind of the course of a career and kind of how I got from here to there. So that's where I'm gonna start. And um, as Mike said, I went to Connecticut College for Women, which by the way, is the site of John Gardner's first teaching job. I don't know if you knew that. 
Um, but after college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I went off and became a college admissions officer at a New England junior college. And I visited Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas in 1965. And I first went to Shawnee Mission High School in Kansas City, Kansas. And it's lovely, shiny, clean, beautiful school with lots of people who look just like me. Uh, high achieving is still, is, I think, in the top 30 of schools in the United States. All was great. Went across the Missouri River, it's three, three miles away, to Kansas City, Kansas. I had never seen anything like it. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, yeah, this was just around uh, the Civil Rights um, Act. I grew up in lily white um, suburban New England and had had no exposure to anything like what I encountered in Kansas City, Kansas. And I can only describe it as a transformational event in terms of really transforming me and what I wanted to do and what I cared about um, and what I thought was important focusing on the challenges that face youth who grew up in urban poverty. So that's what I've done since. Um, came back and went off to graduate school, as Mike suggested, and um, was in a program called Education and Social Policy, which I loved as ESP. I thought that's exactly what people needed in education, um, social policy. Mike Smith um, was on my dissertation committee when I was there, and I'll be mentioning him more because he's been a, a, a constant really throughout my life. So with my new degree, I went off to the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, and they had just started a new education policy research program. And as Mike mentioned, um, the premier kind of research effort at, at that time was the so-called change agent study. And it was a multi-year, multi-method, multi-site um, look at all the federal programs that came together to try to bring reform um, and innovation, especially to the programs like I had seen in Kansas City, Missouri, to the, the high poverty minority um, education reform programs. And out of this did come the term mutual adaptation. So what is mutual adaptation? We found out in doing field visits, note field visits, we actually talked to people and saw them, that where we saw effective change agent programs, we also saw that the people who were implementing them changed not only the policy, but began to change the programs in a way that fit their situation, their teachers, their youth and their community. It wasn't, um, Mike, you can, follow in on this if you want to, but it wasn't the kind of follow the dots implementation assumptions that people had had in the, in the mid 60s and early, early 70s. Kind of a more mechanistic view of what policy implementation was, um, both the program design and policy, but also the research on it. Um, so that finding really pushed against, um, this was sort of a second consciousness raising for me, it pushed against the input output models that were very popular at, at that time. Um, in both research and evaluation, as well as, as, well as public policy. Um, and these findings um, carried, for me, significant implications for research and evaluation, and it raised a whole set of new ideas um, to my Kansas City question, and asked that you begin to understand the how and why educators make choices they do. It's not just implementing a program, but it's thinking about it, and what were they thinking about, and how are they going to do it, and how do they do it? 
context matters, um, big conclusion, and our visits and conversations and observations led to the conclusion that implementation um, not only was an adaptive process, but it was deeply contextualized. And I don't know how many of you are listening who are scientists or mathematicians or iris physicians, um, but in this context, it's a very human kind of activity. I mean, it's, there, there aren't things to pick up and, and kind of go by. Um, and the role of context in that, um, especially in economically distressed urban settings is just huge. Well, in the early 1980s, my context changed. Uh, Ronald Reagan came to Washington and brought the new federalism, remember Mike? Um, and under the new federalism, the goal was restoring power to the states and minimizing what the federal government was doing. And Reagan was especially unhappy with um, education and in fact wanted to abolish the education department um, so that all of it could be taken down to the states. Um, he didn't manage to do that, but funding for education research became scarce um, after the new federalism began um, and opportunities that ran for me to do the kinds of things I was interested in doing also became scarce. And about that time, uh, David Tyatt called uh, and went, asked, said, would you be interested in coming to Stanford and talking about that? Yes. So off to Stanford, I go. And um, Mike Hurst, when you gave your talk about your career, you used the term, the accidental professor. And I was sorry, because I would have used that, but I will call it now the unintended professor. I had no idea at any point of becoming an academic, but I came to Stanford and here were Mike Hurst and Hank Levin, uh, all these people who had interests and concerns and really commitments that were very similar to mine. So I came to Stanford in 1983 and stayed for more than 30 years, very happily. Um, the first work I did at Stanford um, was with Shirley Heath and it really picked up some of the issues that again, Kansas City uh, and things like that had raised for me. Shirley, I, I'm gonna flub saying what this is. She's an anthropological linguist. I won't repeat that, <laughs> um, but she was concerned about language development in uh, poor minority kids. And I was concerned about the larger development question. And we both wondered about how it is that after school or out of school programs matter to poor kids. I focused on the nature and consequences of these programs available um, in urban settings. And we spent considerable time in high poverty settings, three, three major ones. And the first one I will mention, and I want you to remember some of the details because I'm gonna come back to it. Um, this was Chicago's Cabrini Green Housing Project. It was the worst youth community I had ever seen. Um, densely populated, incredibly poor, um, violence, drugs everywhere. A lot of the kids didn't know if they had family at home or not, whether there was gonna be food. I mean, it was, it made Kansas City look like Nirvana. Um, it was, it was, just remember how bad it was. <laughs> Um, the other two programs were, um, one was on the East Coast, one was on the West Coast. So let me just jump to the general findings. Um, and I, I think you'll begin to see how my research accumulates in a way. There were some bad news and some good news from this multi-year, again, multi-year, multi-site um, study of after-school programs. The bad news was that the inner city kids we met um, that particular population were significantly under-resourced in after-school opportunities. They just didn't have much, um, it just wasn't there. And 
in part, I think, because of the, the various issues that were part of these urban settings. But those programs that were there, and this was hard for me to articulate to folks, just didn't fit. And they were just not good fits for these kids. They were either programs that were aiming to fix problems, they're not reading well enough, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, or they were just inappropriate in terms of um, the kids couldn't get to them. There's no transportation to them. Or they were nine programs that operated three days a week from three to five, um, which just wasn't, wasn't sufficient. Um, so that finding, um, which still I think holds up across most urban setting settings is that the, the most vulnerable kids arguably have the fewest opportunities to, to do better. Now, the good news is um, we found some amazing programs that existed for these kids in their neighborhoods um, and where they existed, the outcomes for the kids were stunning. They were just stunning, um, quite in contrast to your usual story. The kids stayed in school, they stayed out of trouble, they set out on positive life pathway. Um, I don't know if you can see this. No, you can't. Urban Sanctuaries, it's a book we wrote about it, um, about these programs and kids. Um, and it was another transformational moment for me because the, the line that one heard often in conversations about this group of kids, um, whether they were dead enders, um, whatever problems they experienced were really because of their own attitudes and behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And how, look what we saw and we called these kids, we gave them a name, we called them the hopefuls um, because they believed in themselves, they believed they could accomplish their goals, they could be effective and they could, they could make a difference. And what this research taught me, transformation number three, um, about the power of opportunity and really one way to think about um, this vulnerable student population is really what is available right up front for them as an opportunity, not a program done to them. Um, so that research uh, has continued, as Micah said, really forever for me in different forms. But a new project got underway then, and this was the Context Center, otherwise known as the CRC. Um, and Mike Smith, once again, uh, became part of the story. Uh, he came to Stanford as dean in 1986. Uh, deep, deep, deep background in history of education and social policy, both as an academic and as a policymaker. Well, Mike wanted a federally supported research center to come to the School of Education. So he wondered if I wanted to develop this OERI center and connected me with Joan Talbert, who is an occupational sociologist with strong quantitative skills to collaborate on developing that proposal. And our proposal was successful. And in 1987, the Center for Research on the Context of Teaching was born at Stanford and its goal was to better understand how teachers make sense of their work in the complex world of K-12. And I wanna say very clearly, the Context Center would not and could not have happened without Joan Talbert, um, just her perspective and her skills and her, her friendship and colleagueship. We remain friends to this, to this day. Mike really created a perfect partnership because Joan brought um, a lot of knowledge about how careers are formed and institutions, and she was able to deal with the knowledge data set, the qualitative and quantitative data set. And I brought my experience with RAND and the 10 years of experience with schools and policy, as well as the after school, after school experience. And we both agreed on um, a, a, 
a general framework for this research, which we called embedded context. So not just looking at a school or a district or whatever, or threading it along um, on a demographic characteristic, but seeing them all as embedded. So in state, city and district embedded in that, school, department, et cetera, et cetera. So the embedded context um, is, is one important part of the context center. And the other, um, Mike, you mentioned this, is to focus on the teacher's eyes perspective rather than an outside in view. Of, of teaching, which is again, the usual social science research is kind of looking, looking from outside in. Um, it was organic, not me mechanistic, and it focused on, again, understanding um, what I learned from Rand, the hows and whys. How is it that educators think about and what do they do in constructing their classrooms? So what we found there, um, was in contrast to the, at that point, there was something around called the what works or effective schools. So in contrast to that, what we found was um, not, not this kind of, again, follow the dots implementation model, but that it was the technical culture of schools and high schools that mattered most, especially urban vulnerable kids. They were the ones who were most sensitive to supports for them um, as, as they grew. So that was the culture was the greatest significance. And we called something professional learning communities. What we found in terms of professional culture with teachers coming together to talk about their students and to talk about responses to them. And that was based in an ongoing kind of culture of inquiry. So again, CRC, highlighted the importance of practice-based inquiry. Um, and Joan often talks about the importance of the difference of knowledge for practice or knowledge of practice and what the professional learning communities and the research we were carrying out in their context focused on was the knowledge, knowledge of practice. Um, we also saw that you can't mandate these things and that leadership really matters. Um, surprise, surprise. So if principals or superintendents um, were not on board, it just wasn't going to happen. So context center with ideas about context and, and culture, and again, especially the importance for low-income urban settings. And in 2000, um, the John Gardner Center was founded, and it drew on many of the context center lessons, as well as the wind, wisdom and inspiration of John Gardner. And... Mike, I think you've said the same thing. John Gardner was the single most significant influence on my thinking and career of anybody in my life. Um, and I want to just, for those of you who don't know who he is, was uh, let me just spend a minute because you'll you'll see why he's somebody met him the other day or we're talking about him and he said he was a god. So um, he's one of ours. He went to Stanford. Um, 1936 bachelor's in psychology. He was a champion swimmer. He got a doctorate in psychology from Berkeley. His first teaching job was at Connecticut College for Women, my alma mater. Um, I think I was not even yet on the way at that point. He was a Marine officer in World War II. And after the war ended, he joined Carnegie as his president in 1955 and also led the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and helped establish the White House Fellows. And from the 1960 onward, he played a major role in civil rights enforcement, education reform, campaign finance reform. And in 1964, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He then became education secretary under Lyndon B. Johnson. And in fact, he was secretary when I was in Kansas City. 
um, that we kind of came together. I mean, I, we didn't know each other, but I was thinking he was, he was heading health education and welfare at some time I was thinking about what's going on. He was the engineer of Johnson's Great Society program. He enforced the 1964 Civil Rights Act, launched Medicare. He passed Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which again, coincidentally was the subject of my doctoral dissertation um, and created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. He resigned in 68 from the Johnson administration because of the Vietnam War. He then went on to found Common Cause, independent sector and headed Urban Coalition. Uh, he was a Stanford trustee from 68 through 82 and President Don Kennedy recruited him back to the farm in 1989 and he became the first Miriam and Peter Haas Centennial Professor of Public Service and was a consulting professor in the School of Education at the time of his death. See the overlaps. <laughs> Just he he um, he had spent his whole career working at multiple levels on this very set of set of issues, and his writing and personal investments, together with my own experience, plus the many many conversations I had with John about what mattered for urban youth, the role of community, the role of a university, most especially Stanford. Um, John agreed to have the Center for Youth and their communities named after him. And Mike Smith said, John would never do it. <laughs> Mike, you said he came to talk to you about whether we would stick with us. Um, he cared very much about it and agreed to have it be the John Gardner Center. He also helped support the center. Um, shortly after we opened our doors, John got a call from the Kaufman Foundation wanting to underwrite a Gardner chair. John said, and I quote, I don't need any more furniture. And he asked that the foundation give these funds to underwrite the John Gardner Center as it was getting started. So off we went to Kansas City. Remember Kansas City? Um, and came back with $5 million um, to start the new center. John reflects, the, the, the Gardner Center reflects his values and beliefs in so many ways. Um, and again, I wanna talk a bit about them because they're just core to our, our operating um, assumptions. He was a big believer in university research partnerships. He thought academics needed first to have contact with the realities. They needed to quote, unquote, touch the earth. More than once he said to me, Stanford needs to get beyond its eucalyptus curtain. Um, he was very clear that the kinds of scholarships that we were talking together about and the John, John Gardner Center wanted to undertake um, not only could happen at Stanford, but should happen, should happen at Stanford. His experience uh, it, as Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare with the Civil Rights Act um, and the struggles he had getting multiple departments to talk to each other and unite around a common purpose really became core again to the Gardner Center's work of uh, across boundaries and common purpose. And Mike mentioned um, the project that best exemplifies this is the Youth Data Archive which contains individual level data. And Iris, you will appreciate how unusual this is for medicine. <laughs> it has medical data, welfare data, social data, education data at the individual level. It's cross-agency, it's longitudinal, and it follows an action-oriented frame um, that reflect local policies and practices. Um, John talked again and again about the value and the the opportunity of local action and local practice. And about locals, he said, you can ask forgiveness, you don't have to ask permission. So if things don't go right, you don't have to kind of go around that. Um, 
but the collaboration and the constituency for the whole responsibility for the community level is core to the Youth Data Archive and very much core to um, John's set of values. So the archive um, has community representatives, public and private nonprofit school districts, out of school, higher ed, county education, health organizations, social service, welfare organizations, but it's not a lookup tool. So I couldn't go in and find Iris Lit and see how she was doing in school. Um, that wouldn't be possible. You could ask a question about how they all come together, but it's but it's not a lookout. Look up. Um, it can't be used if the community owns it. The community owns the data, so we can't use these data without a community sign off. And there are volumes of user uh, user agreements. Um, in addition, the long-term, um, the Gardner Center makes a long-term commitment to its community partners. So we're not in and out. We've, we've stayed with Redwood City, for example, for almost 20 years, uh, open, open the same way. So it, it, the Youth Data Archive represents a reproach that, a reproach that differs from traditional social science. Um, and I mentioned this because I'm about to head into challenges and um, what, it, what it meant for us. Um, it's community driven as a research model. It's not theory driven. We're not testing hypotheses. We respond to communities questions and not to gaps in literature or broad field building opportunities. And it was challenging to get going in many ways. And um, the first among them, you won't be surprised, was community buy-in. You're from Stanford and you're here to help. <laughs> so the, the money that, that John was able to raise from the Coffin Center was just key in letting us be pro bono for quite a while with communities and hang around and be with them and really demonstrate that we were serious about what we wanted to do with them and for them. We heard loud and clear from, um, from community folks that most academic research wasn't used by practitioners because it wasn't useful. Um, so this again, pushed us in the community driven, the driven model. Um, they didn't wanna have ivory towers coming in and talking about their own work. So we worked for years um, to build the trust and to get the agreements and to form the relationships with our community partners. Um, they worried about confidentiality. They worried about finger, finger pointing. Um, one agency saying to the other, see the youth aren't doing well because of you. Um, there were challenges in presenting data that um, I don't think we've completely solved this one either, that were both useful and understanding, understandable to community members, but for us to be able to present it in that way and still hold on to issues of academic quality and utility. We can't talk about Z-scores, right? So how do we present that in a way that's useful to the community? And there were issues for us at Stanford. I'll be just candid about this. Um, there were many worries, some worries, that community-driven research uh, and its departure from normal science, it's a different empirical model. Um, wasn't legitimate within a Stanford context. Um, some academics wondered whether community-driven research could be called research. Is it research or is it community? Is it consulting? Um, we've had a constant struggle, um, and I think it's just the nature of the beast doing this kind of research to stay close to the principles of being user-driven, but also conducting research and analyses that attend to academic standards of quality and utility. It's, it's, <laughs> it's ongoing. Um, but despite this, um, I'll tell you where we are 15 years later, 
uh, it's alive and well. It's bigger and better. It's expanding across Stanford. I believe there's a project starting in the medical school actually at Stanford. Um, we've community approaches that have combated chronic absenteeism through cross-sector analysis. Um, we've worked with some community colleges. Um, one is the City College of San Francisco to change its transition and course taking patterns in, in response to um, what they saw from students, the role of after-school programs. So it's bigger and better. We have ongoing projects now in youth mental health, link, links between health, wellness, developmental programs, pre-K, early learning, probation, homeless, foster, highly mobile youth, et cetera. Um, every district in San Mateo County is collaborating. So it's alive and well, uh, especially for vulnerable youth. So I would like to end this talk of or career outline uh, with a merit eye with the benefits of getting old. There are some benefits to get old. If you're the kind of, Mike is looking puzzled, what benefits he's thinking? Um, especially if you're kind of doing this kind of research that allows um, an intimate uh, involvement with communities and, and organizations, as well as a long-term um, kind of involvement. I wanna mention two of them um, that I've been able to follow up on that, that um, I, just means so much to me. Um, one is a 10-year follow-up on um, the community, full-service community schools uh, initiative in Oakland. In 2010, um, Oakland was a failure on just about every dimension, fiscal, academic, I mean, name it, it was. It was just coming out of state receivership. A new superintendent, Tony Smith, came in who said, you know, this is a system problem. It's not a, it's not a technical problem. It is a cultural problem, but it's a system problem and we need to change everything about this system to be able to provide full service um, supports for youth in a youth development kind of sense. Um, so he integrated a full service community school program for the whole district. Every school district in, in Oakland, every school is a, is a community school that integrated social health and extracurricular services. Um, he made his biggest and first investments in the most needy schools in Oakland. Um, the poorest, the ones with the worst, the worst student outcomes, the most mobility, the most violence, et cetera, et cetera. So those most, most needy schools were the ones that received the greatest support starting 10 years ago um, to serve a whole child. Well, it took 10 years or eight years um, for this to kind of wind its way through the system. But let me just give you some outcomes. The last ones I have now are from 1919. Um, 13% increase in high school graduation rate. Seven of the 11 traditional high schools graduated schools above California's normative graduation rate of a little over 83%. Dropout rates decreased, especially for black, Latinx, and ELL students. Post-secondary involvement was increased. Also decreased, I just find this such a wonderful indicator, was the intra-school mobility Kids didn't move around anymore all the time. Parents didn't move around all the time. They tended to stick with the schools. It took 10 years to have these, these kids and their families kind of wind their way through the systems. Um, and I think the, the district's response to COVID really, again, provides another indicator of how, how this really played out. They have served over 30,000 meals. Every, school, every kid in Oakland has a computer and networks. Um, the partners that have been part of this community school um, agenda are, are still active. It, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story, but, but 
other one I want to share is the one that at some level um, I'm still in disbelief about. It's a 30-year follow-up, see, benefits of getting old, to the Caprini Green story. Um, we've been more or less in touch with the leaders and the, the kids I first met in the mid-80s. Um, they're now 50, 50 years old, um, and could follow up on their pathways. Because of this neighborhood organization uh, was called Cycle, that they belonged to, their pathways were completely different from their peers, whom they used to talk about being dead or in jail. So talking with them, meeting with them 30 years later provides just compelling opportunities of the sustainable powers of, of opportunities. Here's what's going on. Um, you can't be what you can't see, said one. All but three graduated from a post-secondary program. I'm, my end here is a, the number of kids is around 30 that we close with. Um, almost all graduated from a post-secondary program. All enjoy a middle-class lifestyle. All of their kids have graduated from high school and most have gone on to college. This was amazing. I mean, this, um, again, thank Kansas City. Thank, thank the Caberting Green that we were walking around in. This is an organization that was open 24 seven. Um, and it, it just being a partner and, and even in Cabrini Green, this one opportunity, this one investment, this one, this one um, asset um, really changed the life of these kids. And it also underscores, as does the Oakland experience, um, the importance of taking a long-term perspective if we had looked at um, what happened to these kids three to five years out, um, many of them and almost all of the females would have been a disappointment. They would have fallen off the path. They would have not continued under secondary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, many of the women um, either were already parenting or got pregnant. And so they moved away from college or an internship to be family. But every one of them ended up finishing a post-secondary program and several got graduate degrees. The last one, the last woman got a PhD in 2015. So I think they and their families um, and their programs are really proof of concept of opportunity. So Iris, I'll turn to you. Well, I will turn to you and thank you for an amazing uh, stroll down memory lane <laughs> with amazing detours and lessons learned and what an inspirational career you've had and what an inspiration you are. And it's wonderful to hear this from your perspective. And thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. And I, I know there'll be questions and I would urge the audience to post your questions in the Q&A so that we can pose them to Milgram. Well, while we're waiting for some, uh, having, I would say, dabbled in comparison to what you've done, but dabbled in community-based participatory research and known the frustrations of trying to do that in an academic setting, uh, can I ask what you learned uh, might be effective in working with IRBs who want to see finished questionnaires uh, when asking for um, approval. And you go back and say, well, the community's working on it with us and that's part of the study. And at least they, in the past, they didn't get it. What, 
Well, as I said, we have we have volumes of paper on that question. Volumes. And we just go back and come back and keep going back. Um, related to that is a is a normal science problem, not just an IRB problem, but if one wants to do research that replicates other findings, for example, one has to use the same measures. And if you're using the same measures, but they're not the questions the community wants to ask or ask in the same way, um, you can't use them that way. So that's that's been tough. And we tried to explain all that to the IRB. And we also, the other thing, Iris, was um, the, the, data use, the data use agreements. Um, we didn't, published anything without community sign-off and IRB approved of that. Wonderful. That's very inspirational. Um, looks like there is a question from Michelle Marinkovich and she said, is it possible to summarize in just a sentence or two what made the most difference in getting the kind of results you outlined from the Cabrini Green Cycle Group, is the word out on these results? Well, here's a book. It's called uh, "You Can't Be What You Can't See," and um, this is—I learned so much from these people. And Michelle, on the "You Can't Be What You Can't See" point, again, I would push back against many of the the mainstream youth organizations. That, that as much as they want to support youth, I don't believe they really are in touch with what youth of this sort really need in terms of exposure. Um, Cabrini kid, Green Kids have never been to downtown Chicago, for example, uh, never been to the lake, never been to you know kind of mainstream stores. So a, one thing would be a real emphasis on um, youth informed ideas about what would be opportunities as well as adult and firms. Um, lots of visits to community colleges with their families, lots of visits to, you know, to um, internships, et cetera, et cetera. But the other, I mentioned briefly, um, Cycle was part of the community. Um, it was there, it was there, the doors were always open. Um, you could always come in and you didn't have to be there between three and five on Wednesday or Friday. I mean, it was just really, it was a servant to the kids. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Thank you. There's another question from Artie Bienenstock. Thank you. He says, is doubling the Pell Grant size proposed by President Biden likely to increase college and graduate student participation by youth in the lower economic strata? Artie, my honest answer is I don't know um, because it becomes an implementation question. Um, I'm not sure how it will be carried out. Mike, do you have something to say on this? It, it, it's um, it's really yeah, going to depend. If, if, it's, if it's just money dumped in, I don't think so. Without support, Mike, do you, do you uh, want? There, there is some evidence that, of course, financial problems for low-income pupils is a major problem. The Pell Grant has not been increased in many, many years, uh, so it's lagging behind inflation. Uh, so I think it has a good chance of of uh, of, uh, of supporting students. It's been around forever. I, I knew Senator Claiborne fell, and he was uh, prominent in the '70s and passed that in the 19 in that period. So it's a pretty established program, and I think will help. 
Well, the, the, the point that I was making about implementation was, I mean, yes to the financial support, but also the importance of outreach. You can't be what you can't see point. And if the Pell Grant is just gonna increase, increase dollars available for scholarships without anything coming along with it to um, help students see what their, their futures might be, I'm not sure. Hopeful. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I don't see any more written questions. Um, would any of the panelists like to, oh, here's one that's just come up and it's from an anonymous attendee who asks, are schools the key to solving many of the most serious social problems faced by impoverished communities? or are schools frequently expected to solve social problems that are outside of the school's educational mission, which it is impossible for schools to solve? Very insightful question. Um, one thing that I perhaps didn't highlight enough is that the initiatives that I talked about, the Youth Data Archive and the Youth Work and the, the community schools work in Oakland all takes what I call a youth sector perspective that no, it's not just schools, but yes, schools are key, but it's, it's, it's schools in addition to health and welfare, social service, it's a community responsibility. Um, so it really is the entire youth sector and, and I don't believe schools can do it by themselves. Thank you. Another anonymous attendee asks, would you comment on the future of public education, particularly for the uh, underserved populations in light of the pandemic? Mm. There, I think there are lots of worries there, especially among English language learners, uh, Black and Latinx kids who really didn't keep up with their Zoom meetings. <laughs> Again, I would ask for your help here, Mike. I, I, I don't see, I do see um, really capacity issues in the schools themselves in terms of their ability to work with the kinds of problems these kids are bringing to schools now. Um, and certainly it needs to be a partnership. So I have concerns. Mike, do you have concerns? Yes, I agree with all those. Uh, the school people I talk to are absolutely exhausted from all the changes, you know, in terms of getting schools opened and all the changing policies. They've had very little time to plan for accelerated learning that will happen uh, and need to happen. And so I, 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 I'm, yes, very uh, concerned about it. And we're both unsure as to what will, what will happen. I mean, it's unprecedented. Uh, we did all this online education as a, without any preparation. So nobody filled up any plans. They're just thrown into it overnight. Um, uh, it's very unsettling. I agree. Just as a follow-up, Mike, now, of course, nobody could prepare, but now that it's happened, is it your sense that there's any plan underway to share best practices so going forward we might be learning from this collective sudden disaster? <laughs> yes, there is, uh, and it's not extensive. There's very hard to collect data. That was... <laughs> as to what's going on, what the situation is, what does work best uh, in this sense. So th there's some of that, but uh, Milbury mentioned a word we both work with is capacity. The system's capacity 
even if they knew what they were, to implement them is is just it, these are organizations in shock and overload, mm -hmm. and and that that's a really different situation than the normal. Right. Sure. And and they're they're working with kids and families that are also in shock and overload. Exactly. It's, it's both sides of the of the the context and the content yeah. are are issues for sure. Uh, Peter Stansky has a question of, I think, of clarification because he asks about what happened to the Kansas City schools, and I think that was was that the Cabrini Green. No, Kansas City was my um, consciousness transformation, having ah, never okay, seen anything well, like it. Um, wanted, I, what I, I did happened? go back and look, and and Kansas City has been, I may not have the right term, but they've been in the equivalence of receivership. Um, and had accreditation issues, and I think are just coming out of that, um, but not doing too well. Mm. And uh, Cecilia Richway asks, in some ways, making changes really work are a matter of making everything work together. Are there special keys to bringing this off? I'm hearing John Gardner <laughs> in my ears about this. It's Celia. It's the it's the interagency collaboration. It's the the joint responsibility for both outcomes and and um, and capacity building. Um, it's not it's not a single agency that can do it. Um, and it is a it is a cultural issue. Um, the cultural issues were the biggest things we had to overcome in working with communities convincing them that we were really there to be collaborative. Um, well, seeing no further questions, but inviting those of you who might think of them afterwards to contact either us or Milbrae directly. Um, and again, our sincere thanks to you, Milbrae, uh, and your wonderful introducer, Mike Kirst, for coming and sharing your collective expertise and passion and uh, role modeling to the rest of us. So thank you, it's been wonderful. Thank you.